It says, we don't want you to know we've 100% given up, but we there's, have. There's still some hope. Not much. It's small. You'd need an electron microscope to see it, but it remains in the background in the ether. Like some metaphor that I'm reaching for, I can't find. Something, something, um, limit to zero, QED. Oh, God, are we doing calculus? I was told there would be no math. <laughs> yeah, as the limit approaches something, that's calculus. That's joke. Oh, no, I don't, I don't joke. J O A K. I don't kid about my delicious iced coffee either. And it is, in fact, delicious. Well, I'm Just, happy for you. You should be. It's in this new Rack N mug, which I got for free at Cloud Field Day. Hey, foreshadowing. Look at me. I'm so good well at this. Well done. Well Thank done. You. Thank you. Uh, and a nice reusable plastic straw. And if I clink it around, you can hear the ice, which is great for listeners. Well, especially if you get real close to the mic and crunch on the ice. I'm not going to do that because I'm that. not a monster. I was recording a podcast. I'm not going to say with who because I don't want to name names or embarrass anyone, but they're a seasoned podcaster. They should know better. They were drinking some sort of beverage out of a metal insulated open top mug, and it was full of ice. Wow. And every time they went to go take a drink, it was like a, an iceberg breaking off of the mainland. It was so intrusive. <laughs> it's like, we can just edit it out later. It's fine. They're not talking when they're doing it. So we'll, we'll take care of it later. And it wasn't a video podcast. other Unlike this one, which, hey, we have a YouTube channel that you might be watching this on. So I'm sorry. I'll, I'll apologize every time. The, the algorithm made me do it. Oh, God. That's, that's the episode. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. When I was a child, I processed and swapped pages as a child. Now that I'm a man, I page fault and buffer overflow like a man. Oh, to be a Cybertronic lad once more. I mean an organic boy, yes, with organs and stuff. Delicious, delicious organs. I like the pancreas the mostest. With me is Chris, who is also here. Hi, Chris. How's your pancreas? Uh, f fine today. How How is yours? It is also fine and definitely in my body. I have all of the normal human organs. Now, is that true? It's actually not true because I don't have an appendix. Would you like the whole story? <laughs> no, not really. Let me set the stage. It's Halloween. This is true. It's Halloween 2010 and my appendix burst. But there were trick-or-treaters and I still gave them candy before my wife drove me to the hospital. <clears throat> I didn't want I didn't want to be that house that gets egged the following year because that is the tradition. At least you'd in rather the... instead risk dying of sepsis. I didn't. And it was only slightly close. You know it's not good when the MRI tech is like, oh, we need to prep you for surgery. And that's the end of Bad Life Lessons by Ned Bellavance. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, shall we talk about something more uplifting? Perhaps something in the clouds? Oh, God. I'm trying so hard. Just roll with it, man. 
Okay. So today's topic is Cloud Field Day 17, the wrap-up, the, uh, the summary of the event. So last week, I attended Cloud Field Day 17 in beautiful Boston, Massachusetts, and I thought perhaps I could highlight a few vendor presentations I thought were interesting and share some general thoughts on trends and themes that infused the event. This is the first field day event I've gone to that wasn't in the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. Have they done other remote events aside from like, I know they do like tech field days at Cisco Live right now, for example. Right. But events that travel, is this a thing that happens? Aside from conferences, there's only been one or two field day events that took place not in SFO Bay Area. And I think they've all been in Boston because right. there's a startup scene there. And that's also where Steven is, at least he went to school. And I think he grew up in Massachusetts too. So it's like his stomping grounds. Gotcha. Um, that, listeners might be incredibly confused at this point. So let me just back up and explain a little bit. Good idea. Thanks. Uh, we're professionals. Well, we're not. We're not getting paid for this. Uh, Cloud Field Day is part You're of the... <laughs> Shut up. We're not talking about how much I'm paying you to pretend to be my friend. Cloud Field Day is part of the Tech Field Day family of events that are put on by Gestalt IT. Um, and essentially what they are is vendors, technology vendors, pay to present to a panel of about 12 delegates, some in person, most in person, sometimes some virtual, in an interactive format, and each presentation is live streamed. Most of the events are two to three days in length, and there's about eight to nine vendors presenting, usually no more than three on a given day because it's exhausting for everyone. Um, the delegates, why are they delegates? That's an, an interesting turn of phrase. It's because they're meant to represent the audience that's watching. They're there in the stead of the people who might be watching the video as it streams or later. And they're encouraged to interrupt ask questions, and just be general nuisances while the poor, poor beleaguer beleaguered presenters desperately try to get through their PowerPoint decks before we, before we drive them to tears. It's fun. I mean, for us. Not always for them. Well, I mean, some of them are good at it. S some are not that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously, though, the vendors do uh they get some excellent video content that they can reuse out of the whole event they get real-time feedback from alleged experts in the industry so other people and then us and then um sometimes we provide a little too much feedback sometimes we're a little overly opinionated but um that's okay so my first field day event was cloud field day three which was way back in 2018 I have to say, overall, that event changed my life in a positive way. We can dig into that more later, if anyone cares. Probably not. Um, Chris, what was your first event? And do you have landscapers near you? I was hoping you weren't going to be able to hear them, and I was simultaneously also hoping that they were going to stop. <laughs> Neither of those things have been borne out. <laughs> we Sigh. Could, we could have a perfect storm, because today is the day that... Usually the company that mows my lawn comes and this is about the time that they come in, which is, you know, why I definitely should schedule the recordings at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. 
Good That's job, me and you. Strong planning all the way around. Yeah. <laughs> so, what what was your first field day, and what was your experience like? Uh, that would be security field day six. Okay. Which was three security field days ago. Okay. Because the upcoming security field day nine, I will also be going to. That one, the original one, as well as this one, they were both in Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they were good. It was right after everybody started coming out of their caves mm -hmm. from not seeing other human beings again for, what was it? How long was lockdown? 64 years? Um, yes, in dog years. That's correct. <laughs> um, yeah, and I would say that the first one was a little, it was bewildering. It was very fast paced. And because you're with, as the first, as the only new person there, and everybody else gets the, has been there before, they get the way that this is going to go. Yeah. Um, the rapid fire questioning from the delegates is certainly something that I had not seen before. <laughs> and the presenters can be a little disconcerted by it. I think the same uh, rules apply. <laughs> Some of them had been there before and understood mm -hmm. how it was going to go. Mm -hmm. And others, um, less so. Less so. <laughs> yes, I, I have some stories which probably should not be publicly aired uh, regarding presenters of previous times. So that's, that's a conversation for another time. But uh, let's talk about Cloudfield Day 17. Uh, there were six presenters in total. The event was shorter. It was only two days. I'm not going to go over every presentation, but I'm going to talk about three vendors that caught my attention. Um, just full disclosure, this is not necessarily an endorsement of any of the vendors or their products. I have not had a chance to try their solutions or test the claims that were made in the presentations. So bear in mind, I'm going off what they said in the presentation and what I know of the tech landscape and what's allegedly possible. So that disclaimer out of the way. Let's start with Haiku, which is spelled H-Y-C-U, which is in fact an acronym that I've already forgotten what it stands for. <laughs> anyway. Let's stick so, with Haiku then. Yes. What do they do? They are a data protection company, which means backup and, re and recovery, basically. Uh, but they like data protection. Sure. Uh, and their focus is entirely on cloud. So they do not back up traditional workloads that you have on-prem. I don't even know if they can. Regardless, their focus is on cloud. They really got their start um, by building a cloud-native backend for their backup process. So it isn't using just a virtual machine that has standard software installed. They actually wrote the software with cloud-native uh, distributed computing in mind. And they have native backup solutions for AWS, Azure, and GCP. That's not the focus of their presentation now, though. Uh, one thing that they noticed is that a lot of people are using software as a service. Office 365, Jira, NetSuite. Uh, they said there's about 17,000 SaaS apps out there, all of which have data. Data right. that might be important to you. And the vast, vast, vast majority of them have no easy way to back up and restore things aside from putting in a trouble ticket. Why would you need to back it up if it's never, ever going to go down? Right. Backups are for cowards, right? <laughs> um, 
And also, none of them have a necessarily reliable way to export the data, uh, which, you know, if you were trying to move off a particular platform, makes it doubly difficult. So they had this idea because they were trying to build custom backup solutions, particularly for Jira. Or Jira? Is it a hard J? I don't know. That's always the way I've said it. All right. For Jira, they were trying Jira? to... Jira? They were trying to build a backup solution for that. And what they realized is that's not a sustainable model for 17,000 SaaS apps out there. So instead, what they decided they would do is basically build a marketplace and a development kit for SaaS vendors where they can go write a backup solution using this development kit that Haiku has created and then put a backup solution in Haiku's marketplace that anybody who's using that SaaS product can then go grab and back up their stuff with Haiku. So the app developer throws a couple of hooks into their code. Then somebody who is a customer of that app can add it to their Haiku portfolio, as it were. Mm -hmm. The connection happens in the background and all your data gets backed up to the Haiku solution. Right. So they've created sort of some abstraction concepts for any SaaS vendor to use. They used a bunch of different terminology, but it really comes down to here's some containers of data. And when you want to recover or restore, you can restore at various levels of the containers. Um, so it's not just backup. It is, in fact, also restore. And they don't just accept modules from SaaS vendors sight unseen. They have a vetting process that each module goes through to make sure it meets minimum standards in functionality and security. So that's like, for example, actually being able to restore. That would be one of them. Because that's so, actually that's going to be one of my my pitches um, to why Combinator is infinite backups. <laughs> no restore. I didn't say that, but I also didn't not say that. <laughs> So they introduced a bunch of new terminology. The solution overall is called R Cloud. I don't know why. They may have mentioned, I may have spaced out at some point. Uh, but that is composed of a bunch of other sub-solutions that all start with R. So the marketplace is called R Marketplace. They have a dependency graph builder based off the SaaS solutions, solutions you're consuming called R Graph that helps you sort of visualize where your data lives and how you need to back it up. And then they had another one that I'm forgetting now that was R something else. I'm sure pirates out there will be very pleased. So the example they walked through was a full backup and restore of Jira. And in this particular case, they were using it for a migration. So someone who was running Jira on-prem wants to move to the SaaS model. They're going to back up everything with Haiku and then restore it to the SaaS. And that was like, oh, that's kind of nice that that is another thing that they could potentially do. The big question I have, and I want to get your take on this, is do you think they can reasonably expect the SaaS vendors to do the work to create the backup solutions? Like, are they going to be enough of a presence to compel SaaS vendors to do any work? That's a good question. And that was sort of why I was asking how they got their code injected into the SaaS environment with their R-A-P-I, I assume it's called, um, or whatever. Yeah. Because if it's like five lines of code and then all of the, the computing work happens in the background, like it's somehow kind of like an Ansible script, mm -hmm. they'll be fine with that. 
especially since I do believe that companies are starting to take backing up of that data that's in SaaS technologies a little bit more seriously than before. Yes, especially I mean, as they Perfect discover. example, Office 365. Mm -hmm. Every company on earth thinks that Microsoft backs up Office 365 forever. Yep. Until they, do they not. realize, nope. <laughs> Nor can you have them do it for you. Nope. Not a service they offer, which is wild to me. But anyway. So every time, anytime they have some kind of a catastrophe where they lose, you know, their archives or something, they'll be like, oh, Microsoft will back recover it because they backed it up. Well, it's 90 days and four seconds old. So um, here's the thing. <laughs> that purge job just ran. Right. And you're out of luck. And you end up in a situation where, you know, there are a number of products out there that back up O365 and not just email. I'm just using that as the easiest example. Sure. But what you would end up with in that case is you've got one tool to back up Office 365. You've got another tool to back up Jira. You've got another tool to back. And then you have all of a sudden turned into an environment where you've got 75 backup tools for your SaaS tools that are business critical. Yep. Not great. Not, not a great approach. So I think <clears throat> I like the idea that Haiku is pushing here where they are the platform that you will go to to do all your backup things that have to do with cloud and it's incumbent on the vendors to get on board. So I think it's, it's going to necessitate that Haiku becomes popular enough that vendors want to do whatever amount of work is to get in that marketplace. And maybe for the really big solutions, stuff like Jira or NetSuite, popular ones, maybe, you know, Haiku will help them along a little bit with those. Yeah. And I think it's also a waiting game because people are going to get on the, the train of tools consolidation, right? Mm -hmm. If you can consolidate 95% of your SaaS backups on a Haiku platform, chances are you might just ditch the other 5% and replace them with something that fits. Yeah. You know, and that's another incentive for all the SaaS providers to be like, we need to be on that train because that's the one that all the customers are on. Right. And with the breadth of SaaS solutions that are out there, if you don't offer that feature and someone's doing a bake-off, they're going to go with another solution because it does have that feature. Right. Okay, so uh, you touched on a theme that we're going to come back to, which is sort of the one tool to rule them all. Uh, but let's move on to the next vendor, which uh, I alluded to in the beginning of this episode where I showed my Rack N uh, Yeti. I think this is a Yeti, whatever, with my iced coffee. Mm. So Rack N, do they make Yetis or do they make coffee? Neither, unfortunately. Hmm. In that uh, case, I'm confused by your intro tease. <laughs> they like to give away swag, which is why I have entirely too many tumblers in this house. I'm not talking about gymnasts. Oh, you beat me to it. I do what I can. So what does Rack N do? Uh, they created a software platform called Digital Rebar. And there was some confusion over why it was called Digital Rebar. I think it's pretty straightforward, but just to describe what it does, it's basically meant to be an orchestration platform for deploying infrastructure. So if you think about infrastructure as the thing that you build other stuff on, Rebar goes into concrete to make it stronger. This is the digital version of that. It, it's a metaphor. We do metaphors sometimes. It's a, more of a stretch of four. Listen. A stretch of eight was out of the question. So 
what it is, is it's an orchestration platform for managing the lifecycle of infrastructure. And they're primarily focused on traditional on-premises hardware and bare metal. So they can orchestrate the provisioning of bare metal servers, building it from literally the whatever the system board system board management console is, you know, the, whether it's Dell's iDRAC or HPE's ILO or, or whatever the thing is, uh, they can take it from there, provision everything, configure the RAID on that server, the NICs, lay down an operating system, get it prepared all the way up to it being a functional component of your infrastructure. Do the same thing for storage arrays and for network switches. So that's what they're focused on is almost like building a private and managing a private cloud, which means they have to be hardware agnostic, which is challenging because I don't know if you've worked with hardware. It is, it is in fact challenging. <laughs> it's uh, too challenging most of the time. I don't know how many times I've sat at the boot up screen of a server and missed the prompt for raid provisioning by like half a millisecond because it was F5 instead of escape and cursed silently as I rebooted the thing and waited another 10 minutes. Oh, you curse silently? That's so cute. Well, it was silent because the whir of the fan sort of drowned it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, servers like to run those. screaming into the void. It is. The void being the fans running at maximum velocity when the server turns on for some reason. Sure, there's a good reason. Or there's not. Whatever. Anyway, so... That's what they do. That's their orchestration platform. It also can work with cloud constructs. So it could provision stuff in AWS or Azure or whatever. But that's not really the big news, right? The big thing is working with bare metal is hard. They're going to try to make it easier for you. And their target customer are platform and operations teams. So the folks who are building and maintaining that private cloud that other people are then going to use for something. I was trying to come up with like an analogy and it's sort of like, if you think about AWS or Microsoft Azure, both of them have backend software that controls the provisioning and management of the entire Azure or AWS environment. That's custom built software that you as the consumer never interact with, but without which they could not function. Right. This is kind of that, but for on-prem. So if you were in charge of managing the private cloud on-prem, you need some sort of platform that does all the operational things. That's what they're there for. So this is like, because there are tools that, you know, orchestrate infrastructure and have for a while with mm -hmm. varying degrees of success. But are you saying that this would be like, you take the machine out of the box, you put it in the rack, you curse because you can't find the right cable length, you take a break. Wait, sorry, I'm getting a little too detailed. Um, <laughs> but basically, you turn it on, you give it an ILO address, and you say go. Not even that, because uh, you're in a, what you can do is, and what their customers do is, they take the bomb that has like the MAC address of the ILO and everything. They put that into the digital rebar software, cable the server, fire it up, and all kinds of automation happens to provision that server based off of the MAC addresses and the identifiers of the server. So that's the sort of thing that they're talking about. You, you can buy like a pod at a time, 
get all the information from the vendor that ships it to you, load it into your system ahead of time, and have it basically fire up zero touch provisioning. It's pretty not cool. Bad. Yeah. Um, it's not just their own tooling, though. They also leverage third-party tools, stuff like sure. Terraform and Ansible and stuff like that. And you can bring your own tooling in to run as a run task inside their orchestrator. So whatever you're using today can kind of snap into what they do. Um, they really took the sort of the difficulty out of the, the initial hardware provisioning portion of things. So did they do a demo? They did do a demo. And it was interesting because the way that they framed it was you had the operator that's managing the digital rebar and they had a developer persona who was coming to say, hey, I want to just provision infrastructure to run my application. I don't want to deal with your platform. And the conversation went something like, oh, well, that's okay. We have a Terraform provider for our platform. So you don't need to deal directly with the UI or anything. You can just use the Terraform provider to stand up a cluster or an individual set of machines or whatever you want. And then you can run your Ansible playbooks or whatever you want on those. And we'll orchestrate all of that on the back end. You can just use our Terraform provider. And so that was sort of the, the presentation they gave. And it was interesting. I was like, okay, I can kind of see how this would work. If you're, you've got a DevOps style application team that wants to use their tooling against your private cloud, there's a Terraform provider for that. Side point, I just realized that this entire time I've been looking at the wrong camera. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to notice. It's fine. <laughs> no, right. I mean, it seems, it seems promising, assuming that it works, because one of the things that I remember from the hardware days is that some company would have something like this, but mm -hmm. just for their servers. That was the big problem. I mean, right. H HPE had one. Uh, I, I assume Dell had something similar. So you had to buy everything Dell or everything HPE if you wanted to use that product successfully. Right. This is this is agnostic to the hardware. So they have a supported hardware list, and as long as it's on that support list, you're good to go. So you can mix and match Cisco and Supermicro and, I don't know, some EMC gear and still have it work. I would love to see that just every single server in Iraq is different. You bring an old school infrastructure guy through there and just watch him have like a conniption fit. Why? Because none of it's cabled properly. <laughs> I didn't say show him the back of the servers. <laughs> At least that's, buy me dinner first. That's fair. The last company that I wanted to highlight was Couchbase. And they're a database as a service company which is funny because I don't database. I, that is that is a technology that has never made sense to me. Uh, I have done a stint where I tried to write software and use a database and it went about as well as you can imagine. Just not very well at all. I agree. So, the box in, in application design for database is always the one that says something happens. <laughs> So yeah, my experience with database servers is I can install the software, I can stand up the infrastructure, but once it gets to the point where you need to like 
deploy the databases and use them, that's somebody else's problem. Yeah, we are walking away. Absolutely. So I'm not going to focus on any of the cool things they do as a database because <laughs> none of it means anything to me. They're like, we use NoSQL and we can do SQL and we're comparable to DynamoDB. And I'm like, I don't know what any of that means. But I do know that they've built the service using native cloud constructs in the three major clouds. Um, so when you want to provision a database with them, they actually stand up a tenant that they manage in whichever cloud you want to use. And then they offer private or public connection endpoints to that tenant for you to utilize. Um, and they, they're doing it right. By which I mean, for starters, the public endpoint is off by default. And even if you enable it, it is deny all by default. These are all good. Something Azure SQL did not do for like its first five years of existence. <laughs> when you used to provision an Azure, Azure SQL database, it had the public endpoint enabled by default and it was set to allow traffic from anywhere, which like I know Microsoft likes to make things easy, but Jesus Christ, <laughs> come on. <sighs> anyway, so it doesn't do that anymore and Couchbase doesn't do that at all. Thank you. Um, yeah. The other thing uh, that they do is they have options for connecting to the private endpoint. You can either do like a VNet or VPC peering, or you can do a private endpoint in your VNet or VPC, which is where they sort of drop a network interface in a subnet in your networking. And you can talk to that private endpoint over that link. So it really hides all the traffic all the traffic is encapsulated between whatever network that tenant is running in and your network, uh, which makes it even more secure. So I was like, hey, look at you doing things right, right out of the gate. Good for you. <laughs> um, but it's interesting to see they're not they're certainly not the first to do this, but it was interesting to see a database as a service that really is trying to be cross cloud and just saying, wherever you're going to run your cloud workloads, and they have an on-prem version too, you can use this common interface to manage all of your databases. And you can also use RBAC to grant your developers access to provision stuff within certain guardrails using our interface. So you don't have to use eight different types of database as a service for all your different clouds. You could potentially use just this one. So you can truly database from your couch. I guess. I guess that's what they were going for. I don't know. That's I what don't it worry. is now. Okay. Editing Urban Dictionary as we speak. They also gave uh, everyone a really nice hoodie, which that didn't influence my impression of things. But wow. But it is a nice hoodie. Just saying. <laughs> I never get hoodies. I maybe have some pointing. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. No, you get hoodies. You get Raspberry Pis. You get hats. You get Xboxes. It's ridiculous. That Xbox was not from a cloud field day. That was from some other conference where I entered a drawing. It anyway, remains ridiculous. It does. <laughs> <laughs> so those were the three vendors that piqued my interest. Um, I also enjoyed the Morpheus data demo where they're going with their product. And the other two presenters that I didn't really get into were uh, Jetstream Software and Zerto. Uh, Zerto, you may have heard of. Jetstream, probably not. Um, so I do want to sort of pull out a couple common themes within the event. Uh, and I think there's three 
and the one the first one's a little surprising vmware is still very much here that might surprise you (laughs) i'll get to it (laughs) uh the second one is multi-cloud is a reality and we need and tools need to embrace that reality and the third one is platform engineering and internal developer portals are kind of the next big thing after DevOps. So let's dig into the first point, which VMware is still here. And um, you and I, most more so me, uh, tend to deal only with cutting edge stuff. But that's not really the reality for a lot of people. Well, yeah. Because it worked yesterday, it works today, it's probably going to work tomorrow. Yep. You kind of need a pretty compelling reason to stop using a thing. Um, if you look at overall IT spend, public cloud is still less than like 25% of spend, which means a lot of that spend is still happening on-prem, which is probably why Broadcom was willing to pay $61 billion for VMware. (sighs) Yeah, I mean, that is quite the captured audience. Yes. Uh, So in terms of the vendors, uh, a lot of them had a VMware story, which surprising to me because it was cloud field day and I'm just not used to hearing VMware. And honestly, I haven't touched a vSphere environment in probably going on two and a half years. Um, Zerto, their main thing is they replicate VMware virtual machines in real time. That's what they do. That's their big thing. Um, Jetstream software replicates virtual machines in not real time. They're (laughs) more of a, they're more of a backup product or disaster recovery, but what they can replicate to is object storage, which makes them interesting. That is interesting. Rack N is fully capable of orchestrating VMware and private cloud operations. And Morpheus Data can replace uh, vRealize automation in customer environments. In fact, they basically said one of the main things that we come in and replace, there's two big things that they come in and replace, uh, but one of them is vRealize automation. A lot of times they come in and just displace it because, yeah, according to them, they do it better, which is not really a tall order. Um, so yeah, I guess the, the main thing is that core VMware is pretty good and people want to keep using it. Um, and because the rest of the product portfolio around core VMware and vSphere is not that great, there's a lot of opportunity for other vendors to create solutions that assist with that core operation. Yeah. I mean, they've always been solid, like solid's almost as backhanded compliment they've always been the industry leader in on-prem virtualization yeah and the tool sets that they have that directly interact with that and augment that has been pretty solid but as they've tried to exp- i think we all remember vmware air i guess is all i'm saying vcloud air v- yeah sorry, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. there's no reason you would remember the correct name <laughs> <laughs> It always remind. I always envisioned like a whole bunch of MacBook Airs running in a data center somewhere. That's the only reason it sticks in my mind. So yeah, VMware still a thing. Um, the other big trend was multi-cloud is a reality. 
Um, we've been over that one before. We had a whole episode on the state of the cloud report where like 80 something percent of of respondents were running in multiple clouds. Um, but the upshot of that is if you're building a tool today, you're not going to make it cloud specific. You're going to make it generalized for multiple multiple platforms. Um, and then in accordance with that, you should probably create your tool to do one thing really well, sort of the Linux model of building tools, as opposed to the Microsoft model of having one tool try to do everything. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different layers to play in when it comes to the to all these different clouds, um, whether it's backup and restore or monitoring or orchestration. So plenty of room for vendors to come in and sort of hawk their tool for the multi-cloud world. Um, so just some of the vendors, Haiku does backup across multiple clouds. RackN orchestrates multiple clouds. Morpheus can also orchestrate multiple clouds in a different way. And Couchbase, also available across multiple clouds. So I think you get the idea. It's a multi-cloud yeah. world. And there are products that build network paths between multiple clouds and allow you to run, you know, clusters across multiple clouds. And, mm -hmm. you know, this list could go on and on. It could. And that's interesting they should, that you mentioned the networking one, because that's that's going to lead us into a lightning round at one point. Um, the last big trend, platform engineering and internal developer portals, which I had never heard of IDPs before, like, two months ago. But apparently, they're all the rage. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, everybody knew that. But for the people that don't, why don't you... Um... Why don't you talk about it? Sure. Well, I'll start with platform platform engineering, which is sort of that acknowledgement of multi and hybrid cloud being the new reality. And so you need an orchestration system that works across all these clouds that sort of provides a platform, if you will, something that could present a common interface for developers. So instead of going to the AWS portal and the VMware vSphere portal and going to Azure and you know, 20 other portals to get your work done, have the platform team build it all to one portal and present that portal to your internal development teams. Hence, internal developer portal. <laughs> it kind of makes sense, right? Um, so Backstage is a big one that was originally created by folks at Spotify, but now it's an open source project that people are adapting for their unique environments. Um, Morpheus data also thinks of themselves as a potential internal developer portal. Um, other tooling should be developing or designing themselves with a IDP in mind. So not just having an, an API available for interaction, but maybe even building extensions or plugins for some of the more common IDPs out there. Um, I, Morpheus has a plugin framework that you can snap into their product or you can use to interact with their platform. I think Backstage does as well. So I'd encourage all of the vendors that want to be multi-cloud and, and all that kind of stuff, build extensions for the more popular uh, platform IDPs. Yeah, that's going to be, you know, that is probably counts as the edge of the cutting edge at the moment for I know. people like us, but for everybody else, who hasn't heard of it, it's the, the edge is coming. This I think it's metaphor fell apart immediately. It kind of did. 
but it's okay. I, I think you're on to something that this is still very much bleeding edge stuff. And so you're going to have a few really large, high functioning organizations that are doing platform engineering and IDP, or at least saying publicly that they are because it's good marketing. The reality on the ground is going to be something different. And it's going to be, you know, five, 10 years before this is a common thing that's done in organizations and probably only for larger ones, if we're being honest. But certainly, if you're a vendor who's trying to sell into one of those big organizations, you might want to pay attention to this. Yeah. Yeah. So those are my big uh, takeaways on Cloud Field Day 17. Shall we uh, sashay into the lightning round? I mean, I wasn't planning on sashaying. It's a Tuesday, but I guess we can. Sashaying on a Tuesday. Magnificent bastard. Let's go. Microsoft announces that Cortana is taking a back seat in the Windows UI. Well, that was unexpected in the sense that it was expected. <laughs> Microsoft announced that by the end of this year, Cortana will not be a standalone app in Windows. This will likely come as a relief to the majority of Windows users, many of whom are either one in the camp that do not know what Cortana is, click on it sometimes by accident and are baffled as to what it's doing or why, or two, do know what it is, remove, disable, block, and GPO it out of existence on their machine as fast as possible. To be clear, the technology that backends Cortana will still be there. You just won't access it through that app on the desktop. You will access its, quote, increased AI capabilities in the remaining Windows apps like Edge and, uh, I don't know, I, I know Windows makes a bunch of them. It's not important. <laughs> that will build themselves as part of the Microsoft Copilot branding. Mm -hmm. The standalone Cortana productivity assistant will remain mo uh, available in mobile and in Teams deployments, though. So if you do get a specific pleasure from uninstalling it, you'll still have your ways, you weirdo. Hey, I feel attacked. <laughs> Google Cloud is sending friend requests to AWS and Azure uh, to make connections, you see. It'll make sense. Google has announced a new offering for their public cloud service, Cross-Cloud Interconnect. The service provisions a dedicated physical connection from your Google Cloud environment to other public clouds, with Azure, AWS, Oracle Cloud, and Alibaba Cloud to start. As the third runner-up in the public cloud beauty pageant, Google Cloud appears to be vying for the Miss Congeniality Award by making nice with all the other vendors. While there are plenty of third-party solutions from Equinix, Digital Realty, and others that will happily cross-connect your public clouds for you, this is the first time I've seen a public cloud vendor get into the space all by itself. Only time will tell if Google Cloud can truly live up to the likes of Miss Rhode Island. Is it digital realty or is it digital reality? It's digital realty. See, that always makes me sound like a failed company in the metaverse. <laughs> they predate the metaverse if it makes you feel any better. <laughs> DEFCON attendees will have an opportunity to hack a real satellite in space. You did that wrong. It's You weren't looking like you were going to pay space. attention. You're welcome. Yeah, this is your fault for not planning ahead you're probably right anyway now i know what you're thinking 
Hackers have probably already tried. They might have even succeeded. But this effort is for science. The DEF CON Security Conference, in conjunction with the Space Force, among others, has been running a Hackasat contest for the past four years. The target, though, has always been on the ground in some nearby lab. In a mere, it might have already happened if the weather held days, the Aerospace Corporation's Moonlighter CubeSat will be deployed in a proper orbit in outer space for the specific use of security and infosec exercises. It's specifically designed for this purpose. So it will, of course, be a highly sandboxed satellite simulation that allows multiple teams to attack. But it will still be in space, flying at approximately 11 trillion miles an hour at over 6.8 million miles away from Earth or whatever people orbit at. Not a scientist. Back off. Getting a crack at Moonlighter did require some qualification rounds, which, according to one participant, included some wicked hot astronomics problems related to overall mechanics and positioning, which I think means we finally found out what Will Hunting has been up to lately. Well done, well played, and on theme. <laughs> Azure DevOps outage proves that typing is still hard. On May 24th, Azure DevOps had a 10-hour outage in the South Brazil region due to a typo that caused the system to inadvertently delete 17 production databases. Ouch. No data was lost since Microsoft apparently does keep backups of that, but it <laughs> took them almost 10 hours to restore full service due to a series of compounding issues. The initial problem was a typo in a pull request that switched their code base from using a deprecated Azure management package library to the newer resource manager NuGet library. That was intended. But the typo, it was supposed to delete old snapshots, but instead it caused the deletion of the Azure SQL server that hosted the snapshots as well as all the databases. The issue was detected within 20 minutes of the change being merged, but they encountered three issues in restoration, including having to work with the Azure SQL team to recover servers, since they couldn't do it themselves, dealing with the unexpected replication of geo-redundant databases, and a slow warm-up process for the web front end. Microsoft has put in mitigations to prevent this issue from happening in the future, which simply means that things will break in new and exciting ways. Yay, technology. Patent trolls trying to change patent rules to make the bad patent system worse. Yay, technology. <laughs> ah, patents. The system once created to, quote, promote and progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries, unquote. That, every single word of that was right. That was written in the Constitution, which was, embarrassingly, actually news to me. <laughs> what the patent system has become, however, is a disjointed morass wherein anyone can patent anything even if they didn't do any work mm -hmm. as companies or as people, but usually as companies that are called non-practicing entities or more commonly in parlance, 
patent trolls. Patents are given out freely by the patent office, and then the trolls who have them sue legit businesses and open source projects and other targets of financial opportunity for, quote, licensing. Unfortunately, it is often cheaper to just pay them rather than fight in court, you know, almost like extortion, hmm. almost like what a criminal would do. Now, the Patent Office is apparently looking to implement rules to make it harder for third parties to help fight patent trolls. Because in the past, large organizations like the EFF could help. In a real life case, the company that runs GNOME was in a big fight that they got out of because of assistance from third parties. Patent trolls are against this and are trying to make the Patent Office change the rules. And of course, they're trying to have them do it by cover of night, as fast as possible, and with no congressional oversight. Almost like they didn't want anyone to know what they were doing to make their extortions easier. Almost like what a criminal would do. The deadline for comments is just two weeks away. And in the meantime, the Linux Foundation is doing a webinar <laughs> tomorrow, June 7th, to address and explain the issue. I told you they were moving quickly. Mm-hmm. Dude, it's not Adele. At least not for cloud repatriation, that's for damn sure. In a previous episode, we examined whether cloud repatriation was a real and going concern. And the overall conclusion was that evidence was completely lacking to indicate a mass move back to on-prem data centers. To further reinforce that conclusion, Dell announced their Q1 2024 financial years are weird and I hate them, their Q1 2024 results. And they are, well, they're pretty bad. Operating income was down 31% year over year. Their infrastructure solutions group in particular was down 32% in operating income and 18% on net revenue. That's the group one would expect to see some growth from if people were buying like lots of servers and storage. Their other major division, Client Solutions Group, fared even worse, with net revenue down 23% and operating income down 20%. Surprisingly, the stock price didn't take as much of a hit as you might expect. As a leading indicator, investors may believe the narrative that brighter things are ahead. I suppose we'll have to wait and see if AI can swoop in and save Dell's bacon. Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can sit on the couch, strap on your Apple Vision Pro for the low, low price of $3,500 and disconcert every person you interact with. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80 respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes and the sign up for our newsletter are available at chaoslever.com. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. We need to talk about whatever that Apple product is named. Vision Pro? I can't keep it in my head. It's a terrible name. It's ski goggles. That's all I can see. <laughs>